You're listening to This Life Explains It All. With the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Catherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or are going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. Hey guys, I'm Katherine Griffiths. And I'm Stefania Romeo, and you're listening to This Life Explains It All, Vera's podcast. If you're new here, welcome. Catherine and I created This Life Explains It All as part of Vera to share our ongoing discoveries and what helps us most with you in health, career, and support. We're super excited to welcome this week's guest, Maria Sosa. She's a licensed therapist and a health coach. In her work, she connects mental health therapy with nutrition and eating behavior for fully mind and body connected treatment. She specializes in marriage and family therapy and on the health and nutrition side in intuitive eating, which we talk about a lot and we share our own experiences and journeys with. You may have seen Maria's work on Instagram at Holistically Grace, where she shares tips and tools on navigating relationships, mental health, and healthy eating behaviors. We invited her onto the podcast to talk everything from boundary setting with family to navigating how to intuitively eat. So we talk about intuitive eating a lot in the episode, which has been so, so huge for me. And I think for you too, Kat, but we spent a lot of years back in the New York days, especially doing every diet and every fad known to man. I remember the infamous juice cleanse that you did. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. I will never do a juice cleanse again. And I remember it was so hard for me to do that. And I remember one day, because you weren't doing it at the same time as me. I was doing that pre-day one. And I came home, we were living together and you were making soup, like vegetable soup or something, which I normally wouldn't even care about. And I was just like, oh my God, can I have a little (laughs) sip of the broth? Like I'm so hungry. I can't take this. But after the juice cleanse, I binged so hard on like all of my favorite foods, pizza, pasta, burgers. I remember right afterwards. So I realized at that time that those types of restrictions just don't work for me. And now I really just eat whatever I'm craving and I I don't eat it in excess because I know that I can have it whenever I want. Yeah. I think that there was maybe a five-year period where I could count the times that I had carbs on one hand. I was so carb averse. I thought they were evil and I really had so much restriction, but it wasn't until I started 
eating intuitively and just eating whatever my body felt like that I actually did come into a healthier body size, more energy. I shed weight and that was so huge for me. So I love this idea of intuitive eating. It's interesting hearing Maria talk about it because I always have thought about it in the context of, okay, just listen to what you want, listen to when you're full and that's the cornerstone of it. But she talks about a lot of other things that are components of it as well in terms of you know being kind to your body and looking through the lens of nourishment. Yeah, it just made me think about, I wonder if the reason why is because it's, it's like a mental thing. Like if you're eating something and you tell yourself, this is okay to have this, I'm not restricting myself, then it actually just is better on you mentally. So you're not holding on to guilt or shame or any of those emotions around it. So you actually feel better and you end up like losing weight, even though it's not about that because you're not holding on to those extra emotions as much. I definitely believe in that. And I also think that anxiety has us hold on to our weight more as well. And so whatever we can do to be easy on ourselves, especially right now, I'm all for it. All right. Well, this episode, we get into a lot, like we said, from mental health, boundary setting, all through eating behavior and healthy eating, which we felt like were really timely topics as we head into the holidays and maybe spending time with family. So let's get into this episode. Yeah. So in this conversation, we talked to Maria about boundaries, why they're so important for our mental health, what makes them so difficult for us to set as well. And then Stefani and I share our own experiences with setting boundaries and how we've navigated them. We talk about health, diet culture, and like we said, intuitive eating, how food restrictions can make you actually crave certain foods and her perspective on how we can all eat more intuitively. Let's get into the conversation. Welcome, Maria. We're so happy to have you on the podcast and dig into this conversation. So we'd love to start out by hearing a bit more about your background and how you got into this work of being a relationship therapist and also a holistic health coach. Yeah, so I definitely didn't start off with this in mind. My first degree is actually in marketing and public relations. And so that came about mostly from my father, who's an economist, and he really wanted me to go down that route and be a businesswoman and make sure that I was able to take care of myself financially. And the only way that he saw my ability or my way of being able to do that was through studying business and marketing and and all those kinds of things that he was already very much in line with. But I didn't want to study that. I actually wanted to be in education, except that he didn't see any value in that, even though he was a professor as well, which is pretty interesting. So he was a (laughs) college professor. He's like, no, you don't want to go into education. You want to make money. So go that business route thing. Okay. (laughs) I was 18 at the time and I always thought, well, my parents know what is best for me. And I didn't really feel like I had much of a choice at that moment. So I went down that path and quickly figured out that that's not what I wanted to be doing. So after I graduated, I started working for him actually in a consulting company. And I've worked with economic development programs and writing proposals and a lot of things that I just didn't like at all. So I knew that my passion wasn't there. And I always love psychology. So I said, listen, I have to figure out what is best for me. 
So I went back to school for psychology. So I did two years of psychology. And then if you know anything about psychology, you can't do anything unless you have a master's or a PhD. So I got my master's in marriage and family therapy. And that was a really good fit for me just because I loved working in relationships. I loved working with individuals in relationships. I loved working with couples, with families, and just kind of all that relationship component and I loved it. And then additionally to that, I became really interested in nutrition, which was a little obsessive now that I look back on it. It was a little obsessive at the moment and very much centered on aesthetics and very much what I like to now call intuitive eating health counselor, which kind of ties everything else together. Just kind of wanted to get a whole rounded approach to everything health-wise. And uh, that's kind of how I got to where I am today. How do you connect all of those pieces together in your work, being a therapist, but then also having the nutrition and physical health component? How do you connect them and how do you see them connected in your patients and clients that you work with? Yeah, it's already connected, right? We don't really think about it, but it's all really connected. So when you're talking with a client about their well-being, you're asking questions about their health. You're asking questions about their sleep cycles. You're asking questions, or you should be, in my opinion, right? As a holistic practitioner, you should be asking about their sleep. You should be asking about the things that they're eating, whether they're getting enough nutrition in their diet, whether they are being rigid with their food, are they on a diet? So there's all these things that I like to incorporate because it all goes together, your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, it's all one and the same. And so for me, it's it's very natural to kind of pull it all together because I see how it all impacts. And when you're able to make these connections and say, well, you know, you're feeling a lot of depression and it turns out that you're never really moving your body and you're not getting much sleep. Yes, there's a component to depression that's tied into that, right? It's the nutrition aspect and then the rest. So it's always there. We're just not asking about it. Yeah. I love that. And I think that, you know, obviously that's not always done, but I think that is really profound and important that someone's coming to work with you because of something happening with their mental health or mental state. And you're not only digging into that, but you're also asking about what are you eating? What's going into your body? And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I know that you talk a lot about boundaries in your work and how it relates to mental health. So definitely want to touch on that a bit. So when it comes to boundaries from your perspective, why are they so important for our mental health? Yeah. So boundaries are kind of a set of guidelines or rules that we have for ourselves within our relationships. And we can have a relationship with ourselves, we can have a relationship with others, and we also have relationships with concepts or systems, even inanimate objects like social media, right? There's always a relationship. We exist in relationship to something. And so we have rules and we have essential ways of dealing with these relationships. And it's really helpful to kind of dig into the way that we are relating to these things. And that's where boundaries come in. And boundaries aren't just, do you have them or do you not have them? It's more about, are your boundaries 
rigid? Are your boundaries loose or are you kind of somewhere in the middle finding a a healthy medium where it's healthy for you? Definitely on a spectrum because you can have rigidity with some people and you can have loose boundaries with others. So it's a lot more complex and complicated than Instagram will have you believe such as, yes, these are boundaries. No, these are not the things that you should be doing to set boundaries. And they're just very important and basic, but very difficult to kind of set forth and and put together because it's essentially just saying, this is where I am. This is where I end. This is where you begin. These are the things that I'm comfortable with. These are the things that I'm okay giving freely without creating any sort of overextending for myself. So I am willing or able to do this, but not that. So for example, if you're looking at boundaries that you have with family members, especially during the holidays and things that that are coming up, even with COVID and even with everything that's going on, right? There's still all those family components and so conversations regarding our bodies. That's something that we always see during the holidays. And a boundary for that could be, I'm not comfortable having a conversation about weight. I'm not comfortable having a conversation about my body. It's just not something that I want to be engaging in. And there's a consequence component to that as well, where you say, and if we continue to have this conversation, I'm going to exit out of the conversation. I'm going to switch the conversation to a different subject. I'm going to blank, whatever that may be, right? So state what is happening, what you're comfortable with, what you're not comfortable with. And then there's a consequence should this boundary not be followed through by this person that you're having the boundary with. When it comes to ourselves, very basic things such as getting to sleep on time, right? So that's one of the things that I always think about that we don't have very clear boundaries with ourselves about the things that we need. So we know that we need to get a good night's rest, but we will stay up until midnight, one in the morning, scrolling through social media, waking up in the morning, really exhausted, not being able to take the day on the way that we want. And so a good boundary for that would be, well, I'm going to set a timer for social media and I'm going to set a timer for myself for bedtime so that I hold myself accountable because what I ideally want is to take care of myself and have these boundaries with myself so that I'm attaining the goals that I want. So that's a little bit about boundaries and and how they come about. Boundaries have been so important for me as an adult in navigating how to integrate them into my life. They've been one of the most important and impactful things. I grew up in a larger family system and environment where there weren't a lot of boundaries and it was very enmeshed, kind of described from the inside and outside, well, we're just so close. And I think that that can be the cloak or mask on top of environments where there is codependency and not a lot of great boundaries. And so I kind of grew up with the understanding that having a boundary is doing something bad to someone else. If you're setting a boundary up, others would take it as a personal attack on them. And so I had a lot of work to do around creating boundaries And what I found is that it helps me live so much freer. Like it's okay if I don't want to share every part of myself with someone in my family or every single thing that's going on with me. And I found that so, so freeing. And I think that it's a huge part of 
we do create our own sovereignty and we create the environment where there's going to be resentment or there's not going to be resentment. And I've heard that talked about a lot where if you don't have good boundaries, that's a very good environment for resentment to brew. I wonder what your thoughts are on that piece and if you see that in your work. Yeah, you nailed it. Before you even said it, I was like, resentment, the word is resentment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. But you're either going to feel bad about setting the boundary because you're thinking or feeling that you're going to upset someone, right? So that Mm -hmm. is already that initial feeling of, I don't want to upset anybody with the things that I want or the things that I need. So I'd rather just not make them, right? But then the consequence to that is now there's resentment because I'm not saying the things that I want to say because I'm tolerating behaviors that I'm not okay with and that I'm already going to feel bad about that as well. Right. So I'm either going to yeah. feel bad for not sending them or I'm going to feel bad when I do. But when you do set them, then you definitely create a new environment for there not to be resentment later on or for there to be freedom later on and for the relationship to shift and change because it's really hard that first time. But once you get those first boundaries rolling, right? Then people know what to expect. People know what will be the relationship going forward and they adjust to that or they exit or however that may look like. And it changes and you won't feel as bad making them going forward, right? So there is a Mm -hmm. shift and there is a change with boundaries. Of course, there will be people who will push against your boundaries every single time. You won't have that easy flow where they accept it and you kind of move through things and you have this fairy tale boundary experience, there will be pushback and there will be people who won't be okay with your boundaries. And that is going to ultimately have to be okay because the alternative is that resentment and the alternative is being really inauthentic to yourself and the things that you need and being in a constant state of inner turmoil. Yeah. It's so helpful to think about it that way. Essentially, looking at yourself and saying, do I have resentment? And okay, where are my boundaries not strong enough? That's leading to that. One thing that I'll share that has been really helpful for me and being able to effectively set boundaries is coming into this awareness that I don't have to have a reason or an explanation for my boundary. So I think in the first phase of boundary setting, when we're not used to it, we can feel like we need to over-explain it or have a an excuse for it, but really Mm -hmm. coming into that space where you can operate in a way where you're exercising your boundary, such as that's not something that I'm comfortable speaking about, or I'm not going to be able to come and not give an excuse and know that that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a tough one. And I think that we as humans like explanations. So we like to be given information, right? So if you're inviting somebody to a party and they respond that they won't be able to attend, it's like, I wonder if I did something wrong or I wonder Mm -hmm. if something happened that that person won't be coming to the party or do they not like me? Like, you know, we create all of these scenarios and all of these excuses as to why somebody else's boundaries kind of trigger so many things for us. And so it's important to know that, no, we don't have to give excuses, but we can always have clear boundaries with kindness, right? So it doesn't have to be this harsh, nope, can't, see you later. You know, like that's it. I don't have anything, period. And no, I think that we also have to think about who are we speaking to? Is it one of our 
best friends that we want to make sure that we communicate with kindness, that we're just feeling really tired and exhausted and we need to kind of take care of ourselves for that moment, right? And I would like to let you know that it's not that there's anything going on with us or with our relationship and you know we're fine. So can I explain that to you in a way so that I give you a little bit of kindness and peace as well, right? So I think that we also have to make sure that we create a spectrum with those. So there's some people that you really do get to have these really strict, nope, can't make it, and that's it. And then there's some people that I think that we should have a little bit of consideration to provide a bit more information to. Yeah, I think that there is a big element as you were talking, and it made me think of safety, like safety within ourselves and safety within other people. Because for me, About six years ago, when I first moved to Australia, I was going back to the US like three or four times a year because I didn't want to say no. And I I also wanted to be at certain events, but it was also because I just didn't want to upset anyone. And I wanted to, I was doing a lot of people pleasing and I felt guilty. And, and I'm wondering if at that time it was because I just didn't feel that safety within myself enough to be strong or just to be okay with saying no and knowing that no, if I say no, that you know, the people will still be there that are meant to be there. And now that I am much better at saying no, although it's still something that I struggle with, I notice that with certain people that I feel really safe with, I don't have as much of a problem with, but it still does come up with people that maybe I don't feel as safe with. So I'm wondering what you think about the safety piece. Yeah, there is always a safety component to that. Who do we feel safe sharing this information with? Who can I be vulnerable with? So vulnerability is a big thing, right? And we shy away from vulnerability because it's uncomfortable, but it's one of those things that really makes us grow as individuals and in our relationships. But we have to be selective with that vulnerability. We have to know who we can share ourselves with because the downside to that vulnerability is that we're left feeling naked, right? We've put ourselves out there and that person hasn't reciprocated in the same way or they're not sharing themselves with us. So we feel very unsafe in those situations. And we can only go through it and see who feels safe, right? So we don't always know until we try. And it's kind of like you dip your toes in the water and you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to share this one thing and see if this is somebody that I can trust. Right? We don't go full on into the water with our vulnerability because of safety. So we kind of dip our little toes and then, okay, that worked out well. well I'm going to go a little bit further and then a little bit further. And then you find out who those individuals are, where you can be your whole self, who you can share these things head on and can be very honest with because you feel that safety, because you feel that if you're honest about it, they're going to get it. They're going to understand that you are struggling with your mental health at the moment and that you need to prioritize yourself, Mm -hmm. right? So your really good friend will hear that information. I can't make it out tonight because my mental health is just not having it, right? And that's a very different conversation than with an acquaintance, right? You wouldn't tell them, you wouldn't share that because you don't feel safe in that relationship. So you would say, I'm just not able to come. Right. So that would be a hard no. So there is an element of safety, just as you said, Catherine, when it comes to boundaries. Mm -hmm. 
That reminds me a little bit of this famous study that was done across Google proving out that psychological safety creates better teams and groups and work environments. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I imagine that it also extends to personal relationships and groups as well. When people feel comfortable being vulnerable, the outcomes of the work and of the environment are so, so much better. And hearing the two of you talk about that reminded me so much of that study because it makes sense that it would extend into that facet as well. Most definitely. So I don't know if that specific study, but I do know and follow Brene Brown's work who talks about vulnerability Mm -hmm. and Daring Greatly was one of those really amazing books where she looks at vulnerability and how vulnerability can help individuals and teams succeed in the workplace because feeling safe and because feeling that vulnerable space allows for so much more creativity. It allows for us to open up and to share things that are useful for that work environment. So when we feel fear, when we feel like we can't share it because we're going to be shamed or we're going to be berated by our boss because we've just stepped out and said something that was quote unquote stupid, right? So a lot of good ideas may be ignored or may not be put out into the world because we're just really afraid to be vulnerable and Mm -hmm. to share those things. So we miss out a lot if we don't create that culture of vulnerability within our workspaces and within our relationships. There's one other piece I want to touch on as it relates to boundaries. I was having a conversation recently after hearing this concept and idea of the spectrum of boundaries as it relates to where our desire to set a boundary comes from. So essentially this idea that sometimes when we're getting really good at setting boundaries, we feel like this person is toxic. This is not someone I want to deal with. I'm just going to set up a really strong boundary and never talk to them. And how sometimes that actually is a reflection of our own shadow and something that we're seeing in the other person that we're just so uncomfortable with and we don't want to face. So I thought that that was a really interesting nuance where the people who really rub us the wrong way and we our initial reaction might be, I have to set a strong boundary against them, actually might be a mirror to show us, hey, might be something in yourself that you need to, or that would benefit you to look at. What are your thoughts on that? That's really interesting. I, I think I don't know if I had read this somewhere as well, but it was this idea of are we setting boundaries to kind of not push ourselves out of the comfort zone as well, right? So are we saying no to things and setting boundaries because we just want to stay safe in our little pod or our little environment and not venture out into new things? And that's a very, it's very nuanced, right? It's very difficult to kind of know, am I closing myself in and being rigid with my boundaries? Or is this really a place where a boundary needs to be set? And I think it's on a case by case. I think that you really have to kind of have those moments with yourself and say, what am I doing here? Am I closing myself in? Or is this something that I'm trying to keep myself safe from? Or am I shrinking myself by not allowing myself to be in these spaces? So I think that's a great point. Something to think about in terms of boundaries is why am I setting this boundary? What's my purpose behind setting this boundary? And always kind of trying to find 
a balance between that rigidity and that looseness, right? So we don't want to be too rigid. We don't want to have a gazillion boundaries everywhere. And now we're missing out on so many connections, just as you said, are, is the shadow side that we're not engaging in because we feel really uncomfortable. So I think that you're 100% correct that we need to assess the boundaries that we're thinking about setting because it's important to discuss if we're cornering ourselves with our boundaries or if we're really setting boundaries that are good for our our mental health and our well-being within our relationships. Yeah, I was just going to say like, or even to add to that, asking yourself, even though it's hard, like is to ask, like, is this something that I'm hiding from within myself? If I see this in the other person, is this a trait of mine that I don't like? Or just being a little bit more investigative about it, I I find with myself. And it's not always easy to do that because the whole point is that you don't want to face it. So that's why you're like, oh, I can't be around this other person. But when it keeps showing up, then just start asking the question as you feel comfortable. My last question on this is for someone who is finding, I do have resentment. I'm not really so great at boundaries. How do I get started? What's your number one advice for someone who wants to set better boundaries? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is to acknowledge the fact that you can have boundaries, right? So kind of giving yourself that permission to say, I have the permission to set boundaries. That is something that is my right, essentially, as an individual to have boundaries. A lot of people feel that they don't. And so it can be as easy as just even acknowledging the fact that we have these boundaries are that we have the possibility to have boundaries. And second is a lot of exploration into your boundaries. So I think it's important to understand where your current boundaries come from, why things have developed the way that they have. Why is it not okay for you to set boundaries essentially? Like where did that come from? And then starting off with really small things to kind of ease into the discomfort. So if you know you feel very uncomfortable setting one of those like hard and harsh boundaries and what's something small for you that ease you into the world of of boundary setting per se. And that can look like so many different things. So for example, it could look like giving yourself time before you respond to somebody's message, right? So very small boundary of, okay, well, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm in the right state of mind before I respond to this triggering text message that I've just received. So I'm going to make sure that I allow myself that time that I give myself that boundary to kind of digest and then decide upon that. So just very small things to kind of ease into it. I love that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be crazy. It's definitely very uncomfortable at first setting boundaries and saying no. (laughs) Definitely. Moving into the topic of health, because I know that that's another big area of your work. There's so much information coming at us all the time when it comes to what's right or wrong in regards to our diet and our physical health. And want to get your perspective on how you think those messages, everything that we hear in society are impacting us. Yeah. So those messages are very much on, on a binary kind of yes or no, right or wrong, black and white kind of thinking, right? And I think that that's a lot of the danger that comes from those messages that you either are healthy or you're not healthy. And this is the definition of healthy and healthy only looks like 
washboard abs and a kale salad, right? That's it. That's what health is and that's what you should follow. And so it doesn't have any of that gray area where it talks about, okay, well, are you even happy with the things that you're eating? Are you even enjoying what is going on with your body? Do you enjoy moving the way that you do and the exercise that you're doing? Are you incorporating mental health into that? Are you incorporating your occupational health? There's so many components that are missed from that equation, mainstream equation of health that I think really limits us in our conversations regarding health. I've never resonated with diet culture either. And I feel like I've been, we're all so inundated with it. It's like keto, juice cleanses, carb-free, like all of these things that are fads and trends. And I think that can really confuse people. Because of that, one of the things that I have experimented with and really aim to live by right now that I know you work with as well is intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's been a process for me to really start listening to myself. So I actually, most of my life, I was about 10 pounds overweight. So I'm a petite person. I'm 5'3". And so 10 pounds is noticeable. And I felt like I was trying my whole life to just get that off. And it wasn't until a handful of years ago, I started eating intuitively and just listening to what I wanted that I was able to Mm -hmm. be at a weight that just felt like it was what my natural healthiest weight where I have the most energy was. So can you talk a little bit about what is intuitive eating and how can someone start to think about incorporating it into the way that they eat? Yeah. So the first thing that you talked about was the very blatant diet culture. So the very much in your face, you know that it's a diet, you know, the keto, you know, the calorie restriction, you know, all those because they have that diet feel to them. But then there's a lot of diets that don't look like diets, but are the diet mentality. So there is this idea of restriction or there is this idea of willpower. So if you want to be healthy, then you have the willpower to not eat those cookies past that certain time, right? And we call that health, that's restriction. And anything that comes with a restriction or a rule that isn't decided upon by our bodies is in essence part of diet culture, right? So somebody else has created that rule that cookies are quote unquote unhealthy and that you can't have them at this certain time. Whereas if you were to ask your body naturally, and if you're listening to your body's hunger and fullness cues or kind of tuning into your taste bud or what's going on with you at that moment at late that night, right? Like, what are you feeling? Are you hungry? Okay. What are you hungry for? What kind of food would feel good and soothing for this moment? Is it a soup? Is it something crunchy? Is it something sweet? Right. And then also checking in and saying, am I really hungry or am I emotionally unable to kind of deal with the things that are happening in my life? Okay. So let's check in with that as well. And sometimes it is that it is an emotional eating component and it's also okay to say at this moment, I don't have anything to cope with. I don't have anything to soothe me. And food is going to be the only thing that's going to provide that ease at the moment. But I'm aware of it. I know that I'm eating from a place of self-preservation. I know that I'm eating because at the moment I'm going through a lot. And that's very different from eating unconsciously and just eating you know, from a place of both of them fine. We don't need to demonize this idea of emotional eating. What we're just trying to do is cope with 
anxiety, cope with things that we haven't possibly processed. We want to get to that point where we're able to process them, but we also don't want to demonize the behavior that we're engaging in because it doesn't help us at all. More than likely, if we demonize that, we're going to fall into a binge and restrict cycle, right? So after we've had that food, then we're going to restrict it for a really long time and then restriction just leads to another binge. So if you are binging, it's because you're probably restricting at some point as part of that whole cycle. So there's that component, again, of that very blatant diet culture. And then there's a very sneaky diet culture that just looks like quote unquote health, which is that willpower and restrict and limit and and focus on your health. And one of the markers of diet culture is this emphasis on weight. So if we are eating or our intention is weight loss, then that's not intuitive eating. So intuitive eating does not use weight loss as a marker for health. We take that, we put that on the back burner because what we're focusing on is other markers. How do we feel in our bodies? How are we interpreting the cues that we're receiving from our body? How are we understanding everything that's going on around us? And then there's also very much a social justice component as well, where, wait, why are we supposed to be this certain size? Why are we expected to be this weight, why are we expected to define ourselves as our bodies, as opposed to understanding that there is body diversity or that we are so much more than our bodies, right? So there's very much that idea of body liberation and being able to have markers that have nothing to do with the way that we look or that weight or the pair of jeans that we want to get into. So I think that intuitive eating has two camps. (laughs) one that promotes intuitive eating just as this hunger and fullness cues and they call that intuitive eating but the actual intuitive eating which was created by Evelyn Tripoli and Elise Reich there's 10 principles of it and in order for intuitive eating to be intuitive eating as it was intended to be then you have to follow those 10 principles and the first one is getting rid of that diet mentality so we're not going to be thinking about weight loss. We're not going to be weighing ourselves and we're not going to be using these markers of health that have been imposed upon us. Then there's also the letting go of the food police. So there's always a food police message that we're receiving from culture. There's a food police message that we're receiving from our family and even our internalized food police that tells us don't pick that up because you can't trust yourself. There is joyful movement as opposed to exercise. So the movement component is you can move in any way that you want that feels good for your body without having it tied to aesthetics. So you're not working out because you want to get those abs. You're working out because you want to be nice to your body. A concept of body respect. And then finally, the last component is this idea of gentle nutrition. So it's not saying eat whatever you want and have unconditional permission to eat. That's part of it because we have to break down all those structures that we have, you know, if we are in our thirties and that means that we've been learning about food and having these conversations about food ingrained for 30 some odd years of our lives. We've got to break down and deconstruct a lot of those thoughts. And then at the end, now we're going to talk about what is called gentle nutrition. And that is what kind of things do I want to incorporate into my body? What kind of fruits and vegetables do I want to add? What 
feels nourishing to me, right? That I haven't possibly tried. So it's this idea of gentleness without the restriction that we have been taught to believe is the way to health. Wow. That's great. I love all of those. And I like thinking about it like that too. How do you see addiction to things like sugar and carbs playing into intuitive eating? Does that throw everything off or what do you see there? So in terms of the studies that have been done on sugar addiction, as they like to call it. So there, that, that was from a Harvard study that was done on individuals. I'm guessing it was Harvard. I forget exactly. I can't quote or cite at this moment, but the behaviors of food addiction is just restriction, right? So being in a diet mentality and constantly restricting food will make you feel like you are addicted to sugar, will make you feel like you're engaging in these behaviors, but it comes from the restriction. It comes from the diet not because your body's actually addicted to the sugar. And if we're thinking about it from an evolutionary standpoint, the body needed that sugar thrived off the carbs because that's what gives it energy, right? So it's naturally appealing to the body to look for those sugary things and to look for the carbs because it's what has kept us alive, right? So this idea of food addiction really doesn't fit into the intuitive eating model. Also, once you start eating intuitively, your body will crave very different kinds of foods when you're not restricting. So you will be having sugar and you definitely need the carbs for energy, but it will also want other things like greens and vegetables and you know such a different variety of foods when you open yourself up to the idea of having no restrictions. So in that case, there wouldn't be any sort of food addiction because the food addiction is actually defined through the restriction and that feeling that you're addicted because you haven't had it in so long. So once you have it, your body's like, we need this. But that's from the deprivation, not because you're actually addicted to the sugar per se. That's so interesting because I had always thought that it was, and I think that this is also discussed as part of it, there's like this dopamine response that comes with Mm -hmm. having the sugar again. But what you're saying is, it's because of the restrict and then having mm-hmm. it that that dopamine mm-hmm. response comes versus the compound that exists in a sugar. Exactly. So if you think about, if I told you to, we're breathing right now, right? So we're constantly in a state of breath and it flows in and out naturally. We are intuitive breathers, essentially. We don't even have to think about this breathing. It just happens for us, right? However, if I ask you to hold your breath for a really long time and you're holding on to your breath, right? and you're holding on, you're restricting that breath, right? And then I tell you, okay, now let it go. And now you have this like compensatory breath that you take. Same as if you're underwater, right? You're holding your breath there. And that first gasp and that first breath of fresh air feels very different than the normal everyday and intuitive breathing that we do. And that is the same thing with a food restriction. You've restricted it for so long that there's that compensatory behavior to make up for the fact that you haven't had it. Mm-hmm. So the body is definitely feeling this as a reward. I haven't had it in so long that that dopamine is going to be very mm-hmm. high. Whereas if you were having it on a regular basis in a way that feels natural, then you wouldn't feel that certain sense of compensatory reaction to it and the dopamine would not have the same effect. 
One of the things that happens to me now that I'm especially curious for your thoughts on is when I have candy around me, because that's like my vice. I love candy and sugar, but I don't keep it in the house because I will just eat so much of it if it's here. I mean, I eat sweet things and I don't restrict sugar, but in terms of candy, I I don't keep it around. But when I am in an environment or even like say I'm home for the holidays or something and there's like lots of candy and sugar around, I will eat so much of it and I will not feel well, but like I won't be restricting myself. Like I'll be eating it on a regular basis and I'll crave more of it because I've been having it. So what's happening there? Because I feel like there are other people who are like me in that regard. So I'm just curious what's happening there. So what you're looking at is a very limited picture, right? So because you feel that now you're out of control, then you go back into that restriction. It's, I can't trust myself, so I'm going to restrict again. However, if you allowed yourself to flow through that piece, that very small piece, and trusted yourself that you could essentially keep food around the house that is of the sweet nature or of the candy nature, then naturally you wouldn't have that same reaction because you'd be allowed to have it every day. It wouldn't just be for that certain amount of time. So the food would lose its appeal. If I said to you, what's your favorite food? Like my favorite healthy food or my favorite junk food? Just favorite food. (laughs) We don't don't differentiate between healthy or junk food. It's just food. Oh, I don't know what my favorite food is. I don't know. Maybe pasta. Okay. So pasta, Red sauce, pasta. Yeah. Great. Perfect. Okay. So... For dinner on Monday, you're going to have the pasta that you want, right? But you're also going to have it on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, right? And you're going to feel like, okay, great. I'm eating it, and I'm loving it, and I could definitely keep eating it some more. I could definitely keep going through it. I'm addicted to it. (laughs) But by eighth or ninth day, you're going to naturally say, I don't want to eat pasta anymore Mm. because I want to try something Mm. different. I'm satiated with that flavor. I'm satiated from that taste. Naturally, I want to try something else, period. Like it wouldn't be a pasta because you've had enough of it, but you've allowed your body to satiate it naturally. It's not that you stopped yourself after that third day and said, if I don't restrict myself, then I'm going to keep eating it, right? That's what happens when we restrict ourselves with the candy or with the things that we think that we have no control over. We don't allow for the natural satiation to occur within our bodies. So the point is you have to go a little bit longer than (laughs) kind of getting into that fear mode of I can't keep the candy around and I can't control myself because then I'm going to eat it forever. You won't. You will get tired of it and then it'll be a normal food that you keep around the house and you will eat it in a very different way. So you'll go have a candy and then you'll want to eat something else and you'll want a cracker or you'll want a salad or you want pasta, whatever it is, you will have permission to eat anything. So you'll want different things at different times of the day and you won't have those sit downs where you're just you know, eating and eating and eating. Eating Sour Patch Kids. Yeah. 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 
any time in my life where I've tried to restrict myself and I've done, I've tried juice cleanses years ago or one juice cleanse, I wouldn't do it again. (laughs) And I've tried like not having carbs. And anytime I've done that afterwards, I binge on all the food that I had been thinking about during those even just three days or two days. So I won't do that anymore. And now it's exactly like you said, like I love pizza and pasta. Those are my weaknesses. Those are the food that you enjoy because we call it our weaknesses as if liking certain foods was a weakness. It's a joy to have food in our lives and have it be a source Mm -hmm. of joy in our lives. It's, It's a joy. So glad you like those things. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes, they're my absolute joys. (laughs) And I have them whenever I want. And I also have pasta in the house. But again, I don't eat it every day because I know that I can have it if I want to. So that really resonated with me. And it's just, I remember I went to a nutritionist once and she said, I'm not going to tell you to give up anything because I can just tell it's going to really stress you out and you're not going to like this. But, you know, maybe just if you want to have pizza, just, you know, add some greens to it or put some salad on the side. And that really helped me because Mm -hmm. I can still have the pizza, but I'm also having something healthy to complement it. Not that pizza is not healthy, but just have something else as a vegetable to get the vegetables in. Thank you for saying that. Yes. Because it also intuitive eating calls for this change in mindset. We're not where we're not saying these foods are healthy or these foods are junk or this is good or this is bad. We're kind of removing those labels and neutralizing the food. Also knowing that yes, the nutritional value of a pizza is not the same nutritional value that you would have from a piece of chicken and rice. And you know, like we're not trying to say that. That's not what intuitive eating is about. We're very clear and aware of that. But from a moral standpoint, right? We're attaching this idea of morality to food as if what I eat makes me a good person. If I eat the salad, I mm-hmm. am good. If I eat the pizza, I am bad. Who doesn't hold that moral ground at all? And yet we internalize that. And we make that our identity. If I'm doing this, then I'm a good, healthy person. I've got like a halo going on. And if I'm falling off the imaginary wagon that diet culture has created for me, then I'm mm-hmm. bad. You know, we don't need to do that. Yeah. No. Yeah. I say I went, I had a similar experience with the pasta and carbs. Like I tried this no carb thing for a while when that was really big. And now I have carbs all the time and it's fine because I'm not doing it as part of this thing that's evil. And that one of the things that I do find helpful, especially as I was transitioning into more intuitive eating and making more nourishing choices is having more food around that I have to make. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this is aligned with the teaching or if it's something separate, but for me, it's been helpful because it helps me to then kind of just ask myself, okay, do I really want this or am I mindlessly eating? Because that's what would happen for me. More than emotional eating, it was like mindless eating or like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, it's this time. So now I'm like, okay, I'm going to prepare this meal. And it's kind of a check, gut check, Mm -hmm. no pun intended, if you actually want it or not. Yeah. You want to make sure that you have also like different kinds of things. You want to make sure that you have those kinds of meals that you have to prepare and take a little bit longer. And you do want to have quick meals because sometimes what happens is then we won't eat. Right. So I Mm. don't have time to make the food. And so I'll skip a meal. Right. Or I'll kind of find a way to kind of skip through it. And that's also not good at all because we're not nourishing our bodies and we're not giving ourselves the nutrition that we need. So we want to have a variety of things that are ready to go and easy to make should we not have the time to make that and trust that your body will 
let you know what it Mm -hmm. wants. So Mm -hmm. it'll say, really want that soup. So take your time, you know, get all the ingredients out and make the soup or I have to rush. I have things that I need to get done today because I've got a podcast recording that I've got to do and then I've got kids and then whatever it may be. So the most intuitive thing for me to do is to have something that's already made because my body's going to need the nourishment and I'm not going to restrict it and I'm not going to not give it what it needs because the fast choice is not the quote unquote most appropriate appropriate choice or the healthy choice, whatever that may look like. So mm-hmm. having a variety of things is, is also really helpful because we can't always be quote unquote perfect eaters, nor do we need to be. Intuitive eating yeah. doesn't call for that at all. Yeah. Our question that we ask all of our guests is what life experience has been your greatest teacher? It's interesting because the one thing that's really relevant to my life right now has actually been this year, 2020. I know that for so many of us, it's been a time of turmoil, a time of, you know, not knowing and lacking control and so many things. And it has been all that. And for me particularly, it's just been a time to really be honest with myself about things that I had been trying to avoid, about things that I had been hiding from myself, even as a therapist and as somebody who deals with this on a daily basis. I'm not immune to the human experience of not wanting to experience discomfort, of not wanting to get to that shadow and that dark side that we have. We all have that and we don't sit with it. I had not sat with it. I don't ages. I can't even remember the last time that I allowed myself to fully be immersed in anxiety or fully be immersed in what depression feels like for the body, for the mind, for the day-to-day. So I think that has really made a huge impact on me is allowing for negative feelings to exist in my life. And they're not negative. They just don't look positive and, and happy and joyful, but they're so powerful. Anger and pain and sadness are such powerful emotions that we need. We really need to have full emotional expression in order to be full human, right? So if we're just limiting ourselves to the positive, that's great. That's very superficial, very superficial aspects of, of who we are. So full emotional expression, getting to the dark and getting into that abyss of emotions and not staying there, right? So that's another thing. Don't set up shop in in that darkness. You can allow your eyesight to acclimate and kind of look around and be like, okay, I'm here kind of sitting in this place and I'm going to be okay with it because it's it's a good place to grow, but I'm also not going to stay here forever. I'm also going to find joy in little things. I'm also going to find ways to fill my cup with gratitude. I can, I can have both. I can have that darkness and I can have that joy and I'm capable of holding on to different emotions and having complex experiences. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And I completely agree with that. I think it's just like, even this year, there has been so many emotions. So just feeling the emotions and knowing that they're going to go away and there will be different emotions coming again. So I've been looking into that for myself as well. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And where can people find you if they want to work with you, find out more about what you do? 
Yeah. The easiest way is to email me, Maria at Holistically Grace. That's the best way that I will get in contact with you. You can find me on Instagram at Holistically Grace. That's where I think you guys found me. (laughs) And that's where all my content is actually. So if you want to find out who I am and the things that I share and my mentality and the things that are, that I'm passionate about to see if you would be a good fit for me in terms of therapy or holistic health coaching, or I'm actually working on a course at the moment, which will be coming out in January regarding self-betrayal. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, I will be sharing that on my Instagram. And then also again, on my web page, you can sign up for the newsletter and be one of the first to know, but it's all holistically grace. You know, if you Google that, you'll find me. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I feel like there's so much more we could dig into on even on the health fronts. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Thank you, Catherine. And thank you, Stefania. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend. And hit subscribe so you never miss a show.